You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. This is Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. This is Miranda. And this is Shane. And so we get to have a fun conversation about babies and and what they do and what they think, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> what in they inherently are. <laughs> what they inherently are. I've actually wanted to do an episode on various stages of child development. And I don't think it needs to be like a series. Like we'll do like, let's just tackle just in utero. Let's just go over that sort of thing. What's important about that is that, and as we're going to talk about in our discussion today, babies are sort of constantly developing regardless of what that environment so they're fairly well insulated when they're in the womb they aren't getting a whole lot of exposure to all of the circumstances of life just yet which is good for a lot of reasons and they also don't have a lot of the biological uh, equipment necessary while they're in the womb to have a lot of those experiences be meaningful even if they were but they are still developing and they are still developing in the context of that environment, which does include some things like the food that they get and the sound that they get and the relative temperatures and all of that sort of stuff. Those are things that are going to influence a small amount to their degree. And then once they're out in the world and getting to experience the full context of the universe, even from a relatively sheltered perspective, being constantly bombarded by those experiences, right? That are going to be, those are the things that start to shape who they are early on. So a lot of people wanted to know, are we born good? That's the question, right? Are people inherently good? And how would we know if we didn't look at babies? The hypothesis then is that, um, well, I'll start with the hypothesis. Let's actually start with the, the, the question, as I said, is if people are inherently good, if they're inherently bad, or if they're just neutral, and how would we know, right? That's sort of the point of this discussion. And specifically to review... I don't want to call them studies, but some things that people have done that were an attempt to answer that question or ask that question in such a way that they believed they could derive an answer from the way that they asked it. So let's go ahead and, and begin there. And first, a lot of this is being pulled from a book, The Moral Life of Babies by Paul Bloom, which we'll link to in the show notes. And uh, a quick review of that book by an author named Jenny Vadich wrote that in, Bloom, in Bloom's book, um, he's asking the question, do babies have an innate, quote unquote, moral sense where they can discriminate between acts of kindness and acts or performances or behaviors that are mean or in a sense, maybe evil. And he suggests in this book that certain moral senses are innate. And then he also has the caveat that babies are born with underdeveloped and limited capacities for morality. So maybe something's there. Well, he certainly proposes that it is. And we just don't know how much of it is there. He compares this with our ability as humans to be caring and compassionate toward one another. But we also have the ability to act selfishly in an antisocial way. So it, to an extent, according to him, seems to be dependent on conditions and behavioral situations, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think some of the discussion around the idea that babies are evil or good um, seems to come from like I, it, it like. Just kind of this discussion here where they talk about the moral life of babies and, and they depended on the condition and behavioral situations, I think is is a kind of a newer, more modern take on it for sure. I, I like the um I like that it feels like it comes from that philosophy background though, a little bit. Like that the idea of like tabula rasa and forms and all that stuff. I think that's really sure. cool to kind of hear that and us kind of go, No, not so much. Right. 
So a number of people have suggested that humans have the sense of moral right and wrong from the very start in life. And we'll go over some of their investigations, if you will, to try and parse that out. I think I do want to stop and pause just for the moment and have a quick discussion about the the languaging nature of the idea of morality of right and wrong. And so people point out a lot of examples. You hear something like if a lion tackles a gazelle and kills it, is that immoral? And most people will say no, because that's what the lion does. That's it's just, it's an animal and it has to eat and that's how it eats. And that's part of how life has evolved on this planet is some life is predatory and some life is not. And so if we separate the, the act from the language, it's not moral or immoral. It's just a thing that happens. And so when we start talking about morality, it is important, I think, to identify that it is based, that idea of right and wrong. There is no inherent right and wrong in the universe. Things just are. The only time that they become right and wrong is when we assign meaning to them with our language, with our verbal behavior, and with our culture that we have developed around those things, that we have to um, we have to interact with it in a particular way. And so things that are right and wrong come from a human perspective based on the way that we talk about it inside of our cultures and our, our shared experiences and that sort of thing, right? And these sound like fairly complex behaviors to engage in. Right. So if we're thinking about a little baby um, and these experiments that have been proposed that attempt to observe these moral thoughts, moral judgments, moral feelings from these babies, um, we're, we're talking about some pretty complex behavior that's trying to be observed in, in very young children. Right. So some of these experiments, these investigations, if you will, they've proposed to allow for the possibility of observing moral thoughts, moral judgments, and moral feelings from uh, their participants. In this particular case, we're talking about infants. And, and so even in the first year of life, they believe that they can derive some meaning about the extent to which humans come prepared with a sense of, of good and bad. One of the quotes that we had read is, is kind of this idea that um, some sense of good and evil seems to be bred in the bone, which essentially means that um, it's not to say that parents should be so overwhelmingly concentrated with moral development or assume their in interactions and nurturing of their child will be a waste of time. Um, what we're really looking at here is the idea that um, there is some kind of uh, inherent uh, morality that 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 is that is almost like a, a template that's already created for the baby, right? The baby comes out and they already have like this like sense of the world that's a pretty complex sense of the world, uh, and it's not entirely this nurture argument, right? And and still pointing out that that the nurture part of it is critical for the development of of sort of healthy socialization and the parts of the babies. And throughout history, we sort of began with this, but just to revisit this, some people have had some choice words for describing the extent to which there is good and, and badness in, in babies, uh, or at least as an inherent part of being human. Jean-Jacques Rousseau in 1762 described the baby as, or a baby, as, quote, a perfect idiot, end quote, which is a kind of <laughs> was that, unflattering statement. Was he talking about a single baby that he had met or just babies in general? Oh, you know, that's a good question. It might have been just one. <laughs> this baby is so dumb. <laughs> In 1869, Alfred Russell Wallace, who, along with Darwin, discovered natural selection, um, he wrote that, quote, certain human capacities, including 
the moral higher faculties are richer than what you could expect from the product of biological evolution. Some godly force must intervene to create these capacities, end quote. What does that mean? So it's, it's interesting, right? So, you know, the, these are, it, it, throughout history, it's, this isn't a novel kind of exploration and trying to attempt to account for moral behavior, right? So this, this scientist who assisted in, in um, coining that, in, in discovering natural selection, even had difficulty trying to grasp the, the concept of morality within um, a more pragmatic framework. Yeah, without having to appeal to mystical ideas. Exactly. Yeah. And then in 1890, William James actually described the mental life of a baby as one great blooming buzzing confusion, which I think that probably aligns more with how we understand babies today, maybe a little bit. It's just kind of a lot of overwhelming stimuli hitting that baby at the same time. And they're just trying to make sense of any of it at all. Many developmental psychologists believe that ignorance can extend into childhood and that humans can take a very long time to acquire basic knowledge. I think that seems relatively intuitive to me, but um, that is also something that other people apparently find intuitive. All right, and the reason for this could be due to the ability to study the mental life of babies. So considering babies lack language and their behaviors are limited until a specific age, um, those are things to look at as far as uh, the mental life of babies. But also, uh, they cannot engage in the same behaviors, say, a rat or a bird can. Like, they can't do the same types of things like lever pressing or pecking or anything like that. Yeah, I also can't do the same thing as, like, a whale and hold my breath underwater for hours at a time. But I guess that's because of my species barrier that's neither here nor there Hmm. yeah exactly that's like why point that out (laughs) i guess uh in the 1980s there was a couple of researchers elizabeth spelke and renee bailergen they conducted studies with babies they wanted to discover what babies knew about the nature and working of physical objects a lot of people refer to general behavior of babies as that of little um i guess physicists because they can move things around um so hey everyone we're all physicists congrats so anyway then their experiments they wanted to ask the question how do we know what babies are thinking if they like or don't like something if they understand what's going on and i think that's actually a great point to stop right here and just ask how would we know if a baby likes or dislikes something or understands the complexity of it well you can just we can just ask them right and we can just kind of interview them about it they can just kind of tell us like yeah no that's not cool (laughs) this thing though awesome that would be convenient. That would be Unfor- great. Unfortunately, no. For- <laughs> Formula? No thanks. Uh, MRI is not going to do us very much good because there's not really anything to interpret because we can't get any other any correlation to w- what's going on in the brain and what they are like thinking or doing or sa- like they're not saying anything. So we can't see what's happening in the situations to see if they understand what we're even asking them in the first place, right? Exactly. So what is there to measure and observe? Well, one thing I think I probably would not rely on because it seems so tenuous and ridiculous is how long they look at something as a measure of their preference or understanding of that thing. So let's see what they did use instead. So similar to adults, babies seem to hesitate after a situation. I don't know why this is similar to adults. I think maybe adults react in somewhat different ways for a lot of reasons. But in situations like performing a magic trick where something seems to disappear or move in a way it's not supposed to, they look longer at scenes that differ and also if they violate those physics. So apparently they do rely on how long they look at something for some reason. Um, A suggestion of this is that babies possess expectations about how objects in their physical environment should behave. (sighs) 
this contradicts what researchers thought previously and uh, that and instead proposes that babies think of objects similarly as adults do. So they're just little little versions of adults is sort of the way that I'm reading this. Okay, so let's just take a moment. Very brief. I'll just say it really quickly. So the babies possess expectations about about how these objects are supposed to move. Okay, so... <laughs> If a baby has seen something work in a particular way and then it works in a different way, that would be somewhat surprising. I would know that the baby was surprised. It might look at it for a long period of time or a short period of time. And either way, you could justify they looked away because it was surprising or they looked at it because it was surprising. And the hypothesis fits either one of those. That conclusion fits either either one of those those situations because it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It's, it's a conclusion based on nothing. So it's you could say, like, if they they also spontaneously floated up in the air, it was because that they were surprised. And, I, you know, who, who, whatever happens, your, your explanation can't be wrong. It is unfalsifiable, which automatically makes it a relatively weak candidate. Now, that's not to say that maybe they are surprised. That could be a thing. And maybe they're surprised because the things are different. We just don't know specifically because of how long they looked at it, if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I keep going back to uh, the the statement talking about how they may look at scenes longer. Um, I tend to do that because I'm just kind of curious about what's changed or what's different. Or maybe I, it's, it's new stimuli that I'm absorbing. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, I'm thinking... Uh, one way or another about it maybe i'm just like it goes back to that like buzzing bloom of confusion where like even as an adult new information to me is is still this buzzing bloom of confusion until i can organize it in a way that makes sense to me we often stare at car accidents as we're driving down the freeway not because we prefer them but because they are unique and significant events that happen and often because we don't understand what's happening and so we're gazing at something trying to figure out what's happening not that that's necessarily what a baby is doing, but there are just there are so many reasons to gaze at something for an extended period of time. How to draw conclusions about what those reasons are because the fact that it's happening seems spurious at best. I like Miranda's example of interviewing them, though. Yeah, that, or, yeah. <laughs> Why should, not? Just, Why not? You know, just ask know, them. Why hasn't anyone tried this? <laughs> Paper pencil surveys are great for babies. But just give them a Likert scale. Well, they can do physics, so they may. Uh, you certainly should assume they'd be able to answer a simple questionnaire. <laughs> so there were actually some other studies conducted in the 1990s uh, by Bloom and his wife Karen, and they found. So that's the author of of this book that we're discussing, and um, they actually found that babies can do rudimentary math with objects. Whoa, we're all born mathematicians. Impressive. Um, so. Uh, they state, quote, the demonstration is simple. Show a baby an empty stage, raise a screen to obscure part of the stage. In view of the baby, put a Mickey Mouse doll behind the screen. Then put another Mickey Mouse doll behind the screen. Now drop the screen. Adults expect two dolls, and so do five-month-olds. If the screen drops to reveal one or three dolls, the babies look longer in surprise and than they do if the screen drops to reveal two, end quote. So babies are fascinated with magic? weird i don't know i don't know if they're surprised you do have mickey mouse dolls i i guess they're saying they look longer than if they didn't so there's if there are more things to look at than than others yeah does that mean that they're surprised or there are there's something unique about the situation i don't know i just i don't know how to interpret that like why why throw this why would the conclusion be 
if they look at something for slightly longer that they're doing math, you know, I think that the generally things changing rapidly in a way that's inconsistent with how they've generally experienced things in life changing, then that would be, because if, if you can do the, the, the simple thought experiment, imagine that constantly in your environment, things just sort of shift, change and move. Quantities will be more and less like that might be a little disorienting, but you probably get used to it after a while. Like they're just, they're things that are sometimes there and sometimes not sometimes more of them, sometimes fewer of them. And when you look at once, then they're there and you look back and there are more of them that sort of thing. Eventually you just, you stop reacting to that as something that's different. And so if you've been only around an environment where things don't change in that way, then when they do change in that way, that would be surprising. Right. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a stretch to call that math. Like I just, I don't see how that's like, I don't see how that's, those are even rudimentary math skills. I see that as, as very much so, um, Hey, this is my environment and it makes sense now. And then, Oh, there's something new. And I I would argue that there's probably something, it it would be interesting to see this type of like type of experiment in a culture where Mickey Mouse does not exist. Um, because I think that that might be a variable to look at too. I I still don't see how it relates to math. I'll tell you what, if, if they can show me that these five-month-old babies, when they take the screen away and the baby turns around and goes, hey, there used to be two of them and now there's only one, I will be convinced utterly and entirely that they are doing math. That will convince me. That's what I'm me. saying. Just ask them to do the math. Yeah. Right. If this yeah. baby turns around and says, what the hell, then we don't know if it's math <laughs> or they're just surprised by magic or if they just wanted more dolls. We don't know that. They need to be more specific. Exactly. And the rest of this, you know, so it's an empty stage and, and then things appear so there, there's nothing really competing for their attention right they're going to it's orient true. towards action it's very true it's a good point skip you're you're you keep skipping ahead because you keep you started with the conclusion that we just need to ask them and now we're talking about things we're about to discuss you're, you're <laughs> so ahead of the curve miranda <laughs> okay so some other questions that might come up in terms of how we're going to interact with babies and and whether they have this naive inner sense of inherent wisdom about the universe and things that are are good, this sort of naive morality. Morality differs from physics or psychology because there aren't necessarily universal truths about it. As we mentioned, this is a culturally bound social sort of thing. And so these things like moral codes, they, they vary from place to place. Something that is moral in one place is immoral in another and that sort of thing. People everywhere have different sort of mindsets, goals, desires, beliefs, personalities, cultures, norms, those sorts of things. And so there's a study conducted by Joseph Heinrich and colleagues in which they came to the conclusion that the morality humans possess is the consequence of the culture in which they're brought up and not their innate capacities of what is right and wrong. So that seems to sort of undermine this idea that there is a capacity for right and wrong. There also seems to be some idea that there are feelings of compassion that emerge early in life that are universal in human development. And I mean, there, there are things that all humans, almost all humans are going to do um, that are are relatively simple. And once you get past those things that are relatively simple and necessary for survival, you start seeing pretty um, remarkable variability. And so all, almost all humans are going to have the capacity to eat um, and sleep and generally respond to stimulating their environment. And then after that, it starts getting just very nuanced based on the situation 
There are some researchers that have apparently demonstrated uh, what they have defined as as empathy being observed in both young babies and even rats, right? I mean, apparently, apparently we're we're going past that species border now, and we've moved to, um, you know, the thing that's unique about humans is that we can tell good from evil. And now it's just it's a thing that's not unique anymore, um, and rats apparently have morality. So then we now can say that lions. If, if rats also have empathy, then maybe lions also have empathy. And so there is something moral and immoral about killing a gazelle. Take that lion. No more gazelles for you. They made a good argument, but I, I would like to meet a vegan lion and see how that turns out. <laughs> better better meet it early on in its process because it won't, won't be around very much longer. <laughs> obligate carnivores. <laughs> All right, so uh, so the example kind of talking about rats and empathy is, is when in a given situation, if a rat hears another rat scream, this causes the first rat to stress. Um, so that, that could mean a couple different things. I don't know if that, that specifically means that the rat is stressed because of the scream. It might be that there's some inherent danger in the environment that the rat is, um, that, that, that that scream kind of signals uh, oncoming da- danger. Um, it, I don't know that it really speaks to to empathy in that regard. I, I mean, what do you guys think? This is the thing that I always have questions about with these sort of social experiments is you look at a thing that happens and then derive a cause or reason for that thing that happens without any other evidence than the fact that it happened in the first place. This is part of the reason we re-aired that episode on circular reasoning is because of things like this that come up where if the rat screams when they hear a sound of another rat screaming, you can, you can reach all kinds of conclusions for why that might be the case. You might decide that the the rat has a particular neuron that as soon as they hear a rat scream, that they immediately uh, freak out. Like they have a scream neuron. You could say that there is a invisible elf that whenever they hear a rat scream, they poke the nearest rat that's, that's there to, to make it uncomfortable. You could, and, and like anyone, anything you come up with that could possibly be related to the situation um, is going to work because it's just a way of describing that situation and it's just circular reasoning. You have no other evidence for it than the fact that it happened to begin with. The fact that it happens means that your conclusion is inevitable because you can literally say anything that seems to be even tangentially related. And they, they give the example too, when babies cry, then other babies tend to cry. And so that means that they have empathy. I'm like, we don't know. We don't know what's going on there. Like, why not say that they're they're pissed off because the other babies are crying. They're like, I'm trying to get some sleep here. <laughs> and so the babies like cry and be like, that jerk over there is keeping me up. I'm trying to get some sleep. Oh, rather than they're, uh, they're feeling empathy. Like, we, we just don't know. It could be so many things. And so to reach that conclusion seems, again, you're just sort of making stuff up. It's like you're forcing the puzzle piece to fit. I have these three different puzzles <laughs> from three different boxes, and I'm just going to start grabbing pieces and just gluing them That's together. It. Babies and rats <laughs> and baby rats. Now we have to study all these things. Tall order. <laughs> And in addition to all that, you know, they've actually started to look a little bit at altruistic behavior in toddlers. So going even further. That gets us really to what we were meant to talk about, which is some of these investigations that have tried to look at the morality of babies. And so there's a couple of different experiments, one where they use a sort of movie and one where they use puppets. And I'm just going to briefly describe how they do this movie. And essentially the way that this movie is set up, there are some animated shapes and they have faces. So you've got like a triangle and a square and a circle. And they're also different colors, maybe in case the infant is colorblind to or maybe just so that they can really clearly tell them apart, whatever. Um, They have different faces. And essentially what you have is one shape is pushing a ball like up a hill and another shape 
comes and pushes the ball down back down the hill okay so essentially one ball's one shape's trying to do something and the other shape is trying to hinder that one doing it and then what they do is they bring these shapes on a tray to these nine and 12 month olds and they uh and they'll bring it to them and they're looking at whether they approach the one that was the helper the one that was pushing the ball up the hill or the hinderer the one that was trying to stop the one or i don't say trying to stop but stopping the one from pushing it up the hill and pushing it back down the hill then what they did is they showed that the the next scene you would have the ball and whether the ball approaches the one that was pushing it up the hill or approaches the one that was pushing it down the hill. Okay. And then they, uh, the nine and 12 months old, they're going to look at one of these things and they tend to look longer when the ball approached the one that was supposed to be the helper pushing it up the hill versus, uh, approached when the ball approached the, the hinderer, the one that's pushing it down the hill. And the interpretation from this is that if they approach, there's a couple of different ways that this could be interpreted, that both of them happen. If they approach the one that is the helper, then they might look at it longer because they prefer it because it makes sense. If they approach the one that is the hinderer, then they might look at it longer because it surprises them. And so they expect to, uh, they would expect the ball to approach the one that is the helper. And so again, doesn't matter really what show, what happened in the study because you can just layer over language on top of it like they were surprised or they preferred it and it fits. It fits whatever your outcome is going to be. And so, you know, if you already have your conclusion to begin with, then any results are going to fit whatever that conclusion is. Doesn't doesn't really matter what they are because if your conclusion was that, well, babies are inherently good, so therefore they're going to prefer the one that's the helper, then when they go to the one that's the hinderer, and they watch, they look at that one more. They're like, "See, babies are inherently good because they're surprised at the." And we just—I <laughs> mean, we don't know. It's just there's there's way too many reasons for them to look at something for it to be that for that to necessarily be the reason, or as to have any amount of confidence that that's the best explanation. They did say also that with six-month-olds, they seem to have very little expectations about this, and that it was um, it was really only robust when the animal uh, when those animated characters had faces, um, but not if they didn't have faces. I do think it's interesting that this potentially might demonstrate some sort of development, um, you know, and what we know as far as, you know, how rudimentary language starts to develop between nine and 12 months old. It it seems somewhat consistent that, you know, something that's going on there might support some sort of approach response based on what, what was previously observed. What that actually means, I think, is still a question, but, you know, you, you, you look at a nine- 10, 11, 12 month old baby, there, there is certainly some, some language and some more advanced development that's happening versus, you know, a six, a four or five, six month old baby. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Well, I'll talk to that, um, uh, a little bit more further on, but just visiting the point that they are learning things up to the point where they've, they've been exposed to the experiment. Like we're not actually taking a baby that's like, well, you've been raised in a vacuum sealed container where you weren't exposed to any kind of circumstances up until this point. It's they've been around for a few months, some of them almost a couple of years. And so they have been exposed to some amount of language and culture and stimuli things that they're used to in a certain way. So that those would be reliably, those would reliably predict what their uh, performance might be. And that's why I'd much prefer to see an experiment set up where they are deliberately looking at how do we change how do how do we change this and how can we account for this by the things that we're doing and not appealing to something that must inherently be inside them causing them to act this way. 
So, uh, so we're going to look into like kind of some other investigations in baby morality as well. So there was a study conducted at Yale University in the Infant Cognition Center. And essentially what they did was they looked at the parent or the parent took the child into the room where the experiment was being conducted. And the parent typically sat with the child or the child was put into a high chair and the parent sat behind the child. So in one of the studies of moral evaluation, the researchers used three-dimensional animated movies, kind of similar to what we talked about before with the shapes and the hinderers and the helpers. Uh, and what they did in this circumstance is that they looked at these real geometrical objects, manipulated like puppets, and acted out the helping and hindering situations like we discussed before. The yellow square helped put helped the circle up the hill. The red triangle pushed the circle down the hill. So once the babies were finished watching, the experimenter put the helper and the hinderer, the triangle and the square, on the tray and brought them to the child. So in the previous study, the researchers examined looking at a looking time like how long they were looking at the objects but in this experiment they looked at which shape the child the child would reach for so at the end of all this what they actually found was that uh the experimenters found that six to ten month old infants overwhelmingly preferred helpful individual the helpful individual the helpful the helping shape uh to the hindering individual and this wasn't a subtle statistical trend um just about all the babies reached for the good guy so there might be some amount of concern about whether they preferred the shape or the color of the of the thing and that that was the reason that they were reaching for it. So I'm glad that that was something that they factored into their, I guess, interpretation of this. So to try and control for this possibility, they um, actually switched them. So half of the babies got the yellow square as the helper and the other got the yellow square as the hinderers. They had those switched around. And they also attempted to control for, you know, any sort of unconscious cueing. So the experimenter holding the tray had not seen the puppet show. And so they didn't know who was actually bad or, or good when uh, the puppet show was presented. And also the parents um, were to close their eyes when the experimenter offered the tray selection to the child. Very cool. I wonder if they accounted for like position bias at all. Like, or if the, if the, if the six month old baby was left-handed or right-handed. Right. <laughs> I mean, not that that's like the end all know. be all of this <laughs> of this particular investigation, but um, all right. So after this experiment, the researchers were interested in understanding the baby's preferences. So did the babies act this way because they were attracted to the helpful individual or because they were repelled by the hinderer or was it both? So to control for this uh, in another experiment, they added a neutral character and this character neither helped nor hindered uh, what they found in this particular experiment indicated that babies preferred the helpful the helpful person over the neutral and preferred the neutral over the hinderer. And so these results, again, were not subtle. They almost always demonstrated that babies showed up the, the pattern of preferring the good guy over the bad guy. All right. The authors pointed out that this research doesn't necessarily show that babies always believe that the help, helpful character is good and the hindering character is bad. They say all we can safely infer from what the babies reached for is that babies prefer the good guy and show an aversion to the bad guy. And that was the, quoting them there. Now, I'm not sure that we can safely infer that. What we can say is that we showed them this video and they tended to reach for this character from the video more often than the others. That, that could mean a lot of things. I would tend to believe, based on what they've already done, that if they had reached for the hinderer, that they would make the argument instead that they were suspicious of it and wanted to like keep it away from the, the good guy or something like that. Because again, you can say anything you want. You can say anything you want. But... I, again, all we can really safely infer from this is, is exactly what we observed happen, and I don't think we can say anything about their morality about it beyond that, personally. It is interesting, though, because their conclusions and, and their actual experimental design was far more conservative than the other uh, research, the, the other ways that uh, people have explored this. 
previously. Yeah, absolutely. So better work friends do, but yeah, yeah. no, that's that's a great point, and I and I agree with you, and I think that it's just I, I'm not in, even even if we were to like have a way of of really being more clear on this, I'm not sure what we do with that information. You know what I mean? Sure. I'm not sure what that really tells us about about this. So anyway. Um, we're going to move on to the next study that was done that they were, again, trying to increase the confidence that they were responding to niceness and naughtiness. So two uh, researchers, Wynn and Hamlin, they conducted a series of uh, setups and call them studies, I guess, in which they created these uh, different sets of one-act morality plays brought to you by Shakespeare. Um, and in <laughs> in one series, the individual struggled to open a box. The lid would be partially open, but then fall back down. You can actually find this clip on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. And then on alternating trials, one puppet would grab the lid and open it all the way. And another puppet would jump on the box and slam it down. So in here... There are so many different ways to interpret what's good and what's bad. And that's actually one thing that I was I was curious about with the shapes as well is is what like what if the one that is slamming it down like that's actually it's it's property is trying to protect it right or there's a snake um, in the box like exactly that would or be a there, good guy thing to do yeah the thing in the box is bad so we're trying to keep it locked away so we can't hurt the other one like we're we're superimposing the idea that what's happening is moral moral or immoral on the surface when none of it is moral or immoral on the surface really like what could have been happening is on the other one the thing was pushing it up the hill and the other one's pushing it down the hill well what if the other one was like taking it away from where it was supposed to be and the other one was putting it back they if the intention isn't clear and all you simply have is that one thing is moving and another thing is moving then there is no inherent moral position that one could attend to in here so that's just that's one question i had about the setup and how useful this is in trying to understand whether or not what they're doing is moral and immoral on its very face yeah i like every one of those setups is exactly it it's like every one of them is inherently neutral until we give it meaning exactly and and the baby has no frame of reference for giving it meaning and so the fact that they reach for one more than the other doesn't really tell us anything about whether or not there was inherent meaning before because all of these could be interpreted a hundred different ways in terms of what the situation is and all of them could be equally simple to to one another so that we just don't know um you know what 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 the narrative is supposed to be like we have the the authors what they believe that the narrative is but i could just as easily as i said point out that what's actually happening here is that uh the one that's opening the box is doing something it's not supposed to be doing and the other one that's slamming the box shut is doing what it's supposed to be doing the thing that's in the box is supposed to be in there or you know any any way you want to try and spin this uh they all they're all plausibly accurate and all, all equally simple so anyway just to wrap up this study um, they had uh, they had those alternating trials where you had one that was opening it and one that was closing it. They had another study in which the puppet would play with the ball, and uh, what it would do is it would roll the ball to another puppet, and then that, the other puppet would roll it back. But then there was a, a third puppet where if the if the first one rolled it to the other puppet, it would run away with it. And again, this isn't necessarily that any inherent morality going on you know the maybe the second one was getting like they were playing keep away from it with its own with they were taking its lunch money sort of so to speak and and that third one got its lunch money back and ran off with it like to, to go be safe somewhere there's just there's so many ways to spin it and so in both of those study the five month olds uh, they preferred the good guy, which is to say they looked at it longer, the one that helped open the boxes and the one who rolled the ball back. So the, that guy, the researchers decided was good, although we don't know what the babies thought about that, and uh, and that the babies tend to look at that one longer. So they inferred from that that there was inherent morality and that this suggests that all the babies that they studied had a general appreciation of good and bad behavior, one that spans a range of different types of actions. But 
they don't want to get too focused on just the good guy. They also want to get focused on justice. <laughs> and we love justice. All right. So, uh, in a later study, Hamlin, Wynn, and Bloom teamed up with a psychology graduate student at Yale, uh, Neha Mahajan. Um, they wanted to determine if babies possess more subtle moral capacities, and they wondered if good acts could, would meet a positive response and if bad behaviors would meet a negative response. So they exposed 21-month-year-olds to a good guy or bad guy situation. So first of all, uh, if the question here that we're talking about is uh, whether babies are evil, a 21-month-year-old is not a baby. So that's that's not i don't know if that fits the operational definition of baby it's approaching toddlerhood not quite it's approaching yeah. toddlerhood. that's two years old yeah that's yeah, almost two they've definitely been around a lot of language and and scenarios and probably at this point the ipad or the tv has become a babysitter for at least part of its life so they've already seen depictions of a lot of this stuff coming into this even though a lot of them aren't, aren't going to have very much um language developed yet there will be some right and at the very least, they themselves have demonstrated uh, behavior that has been defined for them by caregivers as good or bad. Yes, great Many point. times, because they're 21-month-olds. <laughs> and they do a lot of that. Right. <laughs> so, so they gave the babies the opportunity... The babies, I'm so sorry, I can't keep calling them babies. They gave the toddlers the opportunity to reward the good guy with a treat and punish the bad guy by removing the treat. The authors found when asked to give a treat, they gave a treat to the good guy, and when asked to take away, they took from the bad guy. Sure. Yeah. All right. So, obviously, the moral dilemma or situation can be more elaborate than the choice of just between good and bad. So, in a given situation, would you prefer someone who rewards good and punishes bad to someone who punishes good and rewarded bad? and other combinations and possible spins on that. So to see if babies could do this too, they tested good and bad situations with eight-month-olds. And again, using puppets, they first showed a puppet who acted as a helper. They were helping another puppet open a box. You can interpret that any way you want. Um, I'm going to interpret it as like Ocean's Eleven where they're actually performing a heist. Uh, they they presented us a, a scene where the puppet was the target of a good action by one puppet and the bad action of another puppet. So one was just sort of passively having things happen to it. And the babies had to choose between a puppet who rewarded a good guy versus the puppet who punished a bad guy. They showed next the babies a situation where the puppet character acted as the hinderer. So the puppet was keeping another puppet from opening a box. Might be a good reason for that, but there it is. In this situation, they chose again between a puppet who rewarded the bad guy versus one who punished the bad guy. So the results here were that when the target of the action was itself a good guy, babies preferred the puppet who was nice to it. And, and this isn't surprising given the results of the earlier studies where babies kind of preferred those who acted quote unquote nicely if you want to conceptualize what they were how they were responding as nice so the interesting result was that um, what happened when they watched the bad guy being rewarded or punished um, here they actually chose the punisher so despite their overall preference for good actors as the study is defining them over bad um, then babies were drawn to the bad actors when those actors were punishing bad behavior so babies are sadists <laughs> <laughs> they want justice. <laughs> They're vindictive sadists. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> so does this tell us anything about morality with respect to adults? What do you think? I, I mean, it, the way it's sounding is that babies are just, just blank adult templates already. Like we're just, they're just, they already have their, their sense of moral compass. So they're just, 
We're just giving them a little bit of direction, but not much because they can already kind of do it, right? Right. So author Dinesh D'Souza wrote in his book, What's So Great About Christianity? And he really sta- he uses evolution as uh, his, his sort of jumping off point. And he says that nice and kind behaviors have a clear genetic advantage. And I think to a point, there is something to say that cooperation has a gen- a genetic advantage. It has a survival advantage. Let's put it that way. I think it fits nicely inside of evolutionary science to speak to when, when organisms, specifically in this case, humans work together, they have more resources, they have greater protection from threats, they have a higher reproduction and survival rate. So there is a, a, a survival reason for those, those things to develop inside of the context of, of that situation. But then uh, he goes on to argue, there is no Darwinian rationale for why, for example, you would give up your seat to an old lady on a bus or let someone else who's in a hurry to grocery store. I'm not going to go on this list of nonsense. So there are reasons. <laughs> He's basically saying that there there is no reason that people would be kind to each other in certain situations that are not based on survival. Right. And he gives the example of giving up your seat to someone on the bus. And so instead reason that those behaviors are not best explained by evolution or psychology, but by the voice of God within our souls. That's the best explanation that he can come up with. (laughs) I can't even say it with a straight face. I mean, we understand how certain behaviors and patterns emerge and that those are easily, easily explained by how we understand those, how we understand the process of behavior and and what goes on there. Right. Like we understand that there are certain cultural values that are things that are promoted that even when you are not explicitly rewarded for doing something like giving up your seat to someone on the bus, uh, that that's something we're going to do anyway, because that those fit inside of our cultures and our values. Like you have to, he's basically arguing that, there is a mystical force out there that overrides all of our learning experiences and our genes and that those things are not important and can't possibly account for this. And instead it has to be this, this magical voice of God within our souls. That's, that is the explanation. And I'm not even making a comment on whether or not there, there is a God or, or there's any, or that, that God has any kind of influence over those types of behaviors. That's just not a scientific, that's just not a reasonable way of answering that question, regardless of a being scientific or not. It just doesn't make sense. Like we can't just say, well, your culture doesn't matter in your history doesn't matter and what you've learned doesn't matter and, and everything you know about norms and politeness and all that stuff that you've gotten from wherever you've been raised that's irrelevant um give, we all know that our soul knows what a bus is and our, the voice in our soul knows that what we're supposed to do on a bus and so those things that we've learned up to that point are irre- irrelevant because that's got to be the most likely factor that just that doesn't make any sense uh, regardless of where your faith is at yeah, ultimately, it doesn't add new knowledge to the natural world around us, and, and it doesn't really give us a way of organizing our understanding about the world around us. Yes, well it, said. It's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, nebulous like uh, explanation for what's going on. It doesn't really add to the current body of knowledge that we that we have at our fingertips. So I think that's I think that's kind of where we're coming at more than anything else is like spirituality is great in, in whatever it is that you practice, but it doesn't really explain what is going on here when we talk about morality of babies. Cool. I agree. I think that was really well said. So there's also some larger discussion. As I said, we're going to tackle morality on its own at some point, but they have shown, especially with babies, that they're um they say are are moral bias toward our own kind. So there's sort of an us versus them built into these babies in a way. And studies conducted with babies even up to three months old show a preference for faces of their race that is most familiar to them. Okay, so what they're basically looking at is how long they gaze at this. And and they appropriately point out most familiar to them. So really it's just 
they tend to get used to the things that they're around the most. That's, that's essentially what we're saying. Uh, that's the best description of what's happening. And like, okay, cool. Like, yep. I think, yep. <laughs> I mean, what are we going to add to that? Yes. That is, that is what happens like almost by definition. Uh, congratulations, I guess. And then in another study that was conducted with 11 month olds showed that, they demonstrate a preference, again, usually gazing toward uh, those who speak the same language versus a foreign language. So uh, this is the exact same thing, whatever they tend to be around the most. If they had been raised around 12 different languages, then probably all of those things, they're going to respond to around about the same way. And then especially if they're all t- spoken to it relatively equally and then will be relatively confronted by a language they don't know. I mean, what is the, I don't know. I just, I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand why there's anything unique about that. That is not something that we, we would have predicted or known already, or that we have to try and impose some kind of inherent bias that is built into their, their, their soul or their genetics based on that. Right. You know know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't see, I don't see, uh, I don't see a utility in understanding that because I think that it's just kind of like a, it's that idea of common sense, right? Like uh, it just kind of makes sense that the, if you, if, especially if you know about learning history, it does, if you know about like what that individual has been exposed to for their entire life, then why, why that, that, that fits perfectly in line with that, that perspective. Well, and it's, it, you're right. And it's not even that it's, it's necessarily um, like common sense and not something we don't, that we don't know, but it's sort of taking something like, I'm going to hold up this circle. I'm going to say like, well, research has found the circle is round and i'm like that's the definition of a circle <laughs> I'm like research has shown that people are unfamiliar with things they're unfamiliar with i'm like whoa that's the definition of being unfamiliar with something <laughs> this isn't even I common this sense is the snarkiest i've ever seen I abraham be. this is great got feelings <laughs> let him out like <laughs> like how much time did it take you to figure out that people are unfamiliar with things unfamiliar with that that keep you up at night for a while <laughs> i've got an awesome next birthday present for you it's a box and i'm gonna surprise you by telling you it's box like in nature <laughs> all right I'll, I'll, oh, we'll man. move on. <laughs> Based on these experiments and within his research, Bloom states that babies probably have no conscious access to moral actions, no idea why certain situations or acts are good or bad either. So um, he'll kind of state that they respond on a on a gut level, which I don't know um, that I uh, that I buy that. Right. No. Same. I guess. I guess it, it, what that what that might potentially mean is that these babies respond in a way that you would expect them to and they respond quickly given what they've been exposed to perhaps if you want if you want to define gut level um in some way that's maybe a little bit more um uh pragmatic and and based on you know what we know about learning history so i don't want to put words in his mouth but um maybe giving him a little more credit than he deserves maybe but but, uh, I, I, but without having the precise definition of, of responding from your gut for a for a baby, um, right? <laughs> that's yeah. Now I'm inferring what he's inferring. Oh no, no, it's just that's, a big. It's, it's easy oh. easy to get into that habit. Yeah. I think that uh, baby's burping is responding at a gut level. That's what <laughs> that's what that means to me. Parsimony, my yeah. friend. Parsimony. Fair um, if you. 
<laughs> and he also kind of uh, he he kind of goes into this idea that if you observe older babies in some of these situations or experiments, you can see them smile, clap their hands, shake their heads, frown during these good and bad situations. They're not acting impassively. So his argument is that they are actively engaging in these these acts. So essentially, he points out that their experiences may be cognitively empty but emotionally intense, which is how I would describe politics. <laughs> <laughs> these days anyway hot takes hot takes <laughs> all right and, and it's similar to us as adults we often find uh we often we often have instinctive feelings or thoughts when presented with a moral dilemma so um i think that's kind of what he's liking it towards likening it towards do we though so maybe that's kind of what he's gonna have. <laughs> i mean that's maybe that's, i don't know that's a pretty big claim to make i think yeah i mean i don't we don't we have to unpack what does instinctive mean in this yeah. particular case. And that's something I've been thinking about and wanted to tackle for a while and, and do an episode on is what we mean by instincts and what we mean by human nature. And it'll be a lot of fun because I, I think that there's, when we don't know, we just say it's human nature. <laughs> like if some, if somebody does something and they do so in such a way that they seem like they were, I don't know, very likely to do that thing. Then the rather than do any kind of investigation, the answer is just, oh, that's just human nature. I was uh, on a show. I, I'm actually, before we do that episode, I'm going to spend the next however long it takes before we get to recording that. I'm going to try and write down instances when I hear people say it's just human nature on TV shows or just around other people because it happens so, so, so much. And it was something where it was like a crime show or something, and they're like, you know, people are going to notice someone who's just standing on the streets. It's human nature. I'm like, is it, is that human nature? Like we evolved to specifically attend to strangers on our street. Let's go back hundred thousand years and some of the earliest branches of our evolutionary uh, past what we were what we were developing at that point was the nature to so but that what the the raises inside of the question is what nature is what instinct what instincts are and then what we can know about those things and how we can attribute our actions to those instincts nailed it <laughs> And then kind of Bloom's final thought on all of this, um, he states, quote, Our capacities as babies are sharply limited. It is the insights of rational individuals that make a truly universal and unselfish morality something our species can aspire to. Yeah. All right. Let's go and wrap it up. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I think it's uh, there's we've attacked that plenty of times already. So <laughs> um, as you walk away from this episode. I think the important things to maybe keep in mind are that how are we to know if we have some inherent capacity for good and evil and understanding the difference between those two things and asking a baby at a certain level of age is a way in which people have gone about doing that. But the way that they ask it and measure it are very ambiguous situations based on very ambiguous responses from the babies and essentially just layering on top of that our interpretation of what we think that might mean. And that to me tells me that we we have as 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 much of an idea about the inherent morality of babies as we did before we did any of that research because of how many assumptions had to be made in order to conduct it in the first place. And I will say, I think there have been some interesting questions raised by this when they actually put in some controls. I think we had some more to work with and talk about and maybe try and discern when they switched the shapes and the colors, when they blinded the not physically blinded, but when they uh, made it so that the 
the research assistants didn't know which ones they were doing when they introduced different characters all of those things helped bring a level of control to it that made that made us sort of think look at this and think maybe there's something to investigate down the road that maybe is the jumping off point but a lot of these things they were they were so ambiguous that we have we have nothing to attend to to tell us that we know anything more about it now than we did when we before we started you know what i mean I agree. And I think, it, you know, we discussed earlier, too, you know, it's it, it's really trying to distill these really complex concepts um, that even us as you know, a, adult human beings with fairly advanced cognition struggle with, right? Morality, ethics, um, you know, and, and how the, the interplay of those things actually manifest themselves and how we behave. Um, not that there's anything wrong with obviously trying to apply experimental rigor to human behavior and and deriving things from from what we observe but trying to do that in this particular arrangement where the rigor really wasn't there where so much was inferred by the experimental presentation and layered on by the researchers themselves um, it's really hard to extrapolate anything of benefit on those concepts that philosophers have been discussing for thousands of years you know yeah uh, I guess I'm probably for me, I, I probably walk away from this this episode and kind of a lot of this research with the question of like, I still don't really understand if babies are evil. That's still a question of mine. Um, you know, I just I, and more seriously, I just don't know that this really gives us anything to build on. I don't I don't know. I mean, I still I still have a hard time seeing it outside of like more a more natural science type of you know lens i don't really see it uh i see it more as like child development and, and growth but not really like a, an issue of morality with babies I, I definitely see it more as just this this idea that uh you know i think and i think more importantly when we did we, we dig into this episode when we talk about that idea of culture and cultural selection i think that is kind of the key to it is really that language and that cultural piece because that's what shapes it up over a long period of time like a baby's not walking out going like oh i really support the death penalty um <laughs> you know um i think it's i think that that's you know it comes down to that, that that language piece that 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 cultural piece that that environmental piece more than anything else babies are really cute they are cute these watch these experiments because like they're, they're cute yeah. like you see some cute babies we like babies we don't like bad babies science. are cool <laughs> Yeah, babies are fine. Babies are great. Babies are great. I've I've got two of them myself. They're great. Hey, scientists, leave those hey. babies alone. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I like science with babies. I don't like this, but I like science with babies. <laughs> Badoomts. Yep. That was that was my joke. <laughs> all right cool all right well with all of that then we'll go ahead and close it out here if you have any questions or comments please reach out and contact us maybe you think that your baby is particularly moral and that's fine we'd love to hear from you so uh listen at the end for all of the ways that you can get in touch with us all right special thanks to Brittany marie desanti and Britt bowerly for their assistance and research and preparation of this episode that's the end of this one this is abraham this is miranda and this is shane we're out you've been listening to why we do what we do why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. 
If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.